0: Thank you for joining us today for the Restoration Church podcast. Today is the ninth in our James series, and it is called Stand Against Indifference and Injustice. Hope you enjoy. Welcome to Restoration Church. If you're a guest, thank you for joining us. Um, we got a lot of family back in town, so it's good to see everybody. Nice to see some faces, people we love and care about. If you're joining us on Facebook Live, thank you for joining us. We're glad you guys are here. Um, today's message is uh, going to be a little bit... Um, it's going to poke you a little bit. It's, it's just going to be a little uncomfortable. Uh, so, and I want to tell you that straight up front so that you don't tune out when you start getting offended. Um, as <laughs> be honest, as, a, as I was preparing this message, I got very offended um, at what God's Word was telling me and how it was speaking to my heart and opening my eyes to things that I thought I knew and that I didn't. And so I just want to prepare you that it's going to hurt a little bit. Um, it's a little bit of sandpaper involved in God's Word today. But the beautiful thing is, at the end of it, there's really, really good news. There's really good news, and there's hope for us. Jonathan Edwards. Maybe some of you have heard who Jonathan Edwards is. He's one of the great preachers um, in history. He wrote a sermon called Sinners in the Hands of Angry God. Anybody ever heard of that? Yeah, and kind of the story that's told about when he presented this sermon, he presented it uh, in a monotone voice, reading the manuscript from the pulpit, and just kept, kept preaching, and when he looked up, they were like, tons of people at the altar like crying and weeping and and asking God to forgive them of their sins and then he just kept reading in a monotone voice he wasn't wasn't a guy for exaggeration he wasn't a charismatic preacher uh, as known by many people he wasn't a, a guy who used hyperbole to exaggerate that this is the most important text in scripture or this is the most important thing you need to know but he did write a sermon called The Duty of Christian Charity and in it he argues that There is nothing more clear, nothing more clear in all of scripture, nothing with more text, nothing with more um, certainty than the duty of the Christian to care for the poor. Yet, when we think about church life, we maybe think about our personal lives, care for the poor is an option. We we make it into something that we might do or we might not do. When we pass the guy on the street with the sign, uh, we don't look the other way and we just keep driving. We think about it, but we also think about it might be something that the church is supposed to do, right? And that there might be a team that cares for the poor. It might be the deacons, right? There are a select group of people in the church. It's their responsibility to care for the poor. But Jonathan Edwards argues that that's not the case, that it is the responsibility of every single believer. Poverty is a real issue. Poverty exists all over the world. There's a global impact. There's a U.S. impact. There's a Durham impact. And I'll kind of paint that picture for you as we get into today. The World Bank estimates that if, the, if, if someone lives on a $1.90 a day, that is like global poverty, right? $1.90 a day. Uh, the World Bank estimates that 9.6% of the population of the world lives on less than $1.90 a day. That's 700 million people. 700 million people. If you increase that to $2.50 a day, anybody want to go with that? Live on two fifty a day. Uh, that's half the world population. That's three point seven billion pe- souls that live on less than two dollars and fifty cents a day. Most of all the world poverty is is in five countries: China, Bangladesh, India, the Repu- the Democratic Republic of Congo, and Nigeria. Most of the world's poverty exists in those five countries. It's all hoarded in one place. In the in the US 15% of the world of the US population lives in, in poverty. That's about 47.9 million people. 47.9 million people. And above, among those 47.9, the vast majority of them, the one that is the the subgroup that is most affected are children. 7.2 million people. 7.2 million children living in poverty. In Durham, we're slightly higher than the national rate at 22.9%. Real numbers, that's 69,000 people in Durham live in poverty. 69,000. 19,320 are children. That's 28%. Poverty is a real issue. And here's the scary thing. As we advance in our culture, as we worry about terrorism, as we worry about our housing market and our, and our, and our stock market, the concern about poverty is decreasing. We're more concerned about what we don't have than what people who don't have. Right? Listen to this. In 2011, there was a poll taken across the world, uh, across the U.S., and 21% of the population was concerned about poverty. Two years later, it dropped five percentage points to 16%. Two years later. Imagine what it is now. We as believers, we as the church, we as a, as a population, we're losing concern for the poor. Especially the global poor. Especially the global poor. We think we know what causes it, right? We think we, ha- we come into it with a, a right perspective. We know that people are poor because they make bad choices. Right? Or they're lazy. We, we assume they're lazy. They don't work hard enough. Or, you know, if you're a true, you know, hardcore capitalist, if you just pull yourself up by your bootsteps, bootstraps, you'll be good. And, you, and you'll get out of poverty. Yet... It's not real. Actually, there's a lot of research that goes in and shows that laziness and poverty have no correlation. People who live in poverty work two and three jobs, and they work hard. But there's something preventing them from climbing out of poverty. Today, it's no different than it was in the Scripture. Today's culture right now, dealing with poverty, is no different than it was in the Bible. You know that that there are 200 texts in the Old Testament where God talks about poverty and talks about the poor. 200 over 200 texts. And in those in those passages, only 10% of them talk about the reason people are poor is because they've squandered, they've lived foolishly, they were lazy, they didn't they didn't work. Only 10%. The other 10% says that poverty is associated with two things. An economic problem and a social problem. An economic problem and a social problem. Economic meaning that it's not that they didn't they don't have because they don't work, it's that they don't have The poor just don't have access to resources, to money, to food, to the things that people who are wealthy have access to. It's not that they had it and they lost it because they were foolish. It's that they were born into generations without. Laziness has nothing to do with it. It's a lack of something that the world finds valuable. Lack of something that the world can profit off of you for. So if you are attractive... You can sing or you can play basketball or you're really good at football or some sport. That you could be the one in a million that makes it to the NFL or the NBA. If, you're, if, you're, if you have talents or you can read, you can read. You're ahead of the game. If you have something of, of marketable worth, social skills, you know how to maintain good relationships. You can talk to people and have good conversations. You're more likely to get a job. You're more likely not to live in poverty. If you don't have, it's an economic problem. Today, James is going to tell us that it's a social problem. And it's a social problem that the gospel speaks to. It's the social problem that the gospel speaks to. It's not that the poor... It's, it's what the poor have is taken from them. There's an injustice. And then it's the way and the hearts, of the wealthy, and the way they live towards the poor, which is an indifference. Those are two words that James is going to talk about. He's going to show us in the text. So, James chapter 5. If you want to find that, while you do that, I'm going to set the scene of James just to give you some, some reference point to where we're talking about. James is talking to early Christians. Remember, this is, the, this is before the Gospels were written. This is in the first 50 years of the church. Um, remember, it was a little different in here in this time period. The, the Gospel and Acts had been proclaimed. People had come into the city of Jerusalem to hear for the Passover feast and then the feast afterwards. They had heard the Gospel and they, and they were saved by grace through faith. Thousands were saved every day. God was adding to their numbers. The church was growing exponentially, and they weren't leaving and going back. They were staying in the Jerusalem area, right? So they didn't bring all their wealth with them. So there were a lot of poor, there were people without in the early church. And remember, we see in Acts chapter 2, verse 45, we see that everyone was selling their possessions and giving to one another so no one had need, right? That was one of the characteristics of the early church. They were doing this because poverty existed among them, among the people of the church. Now, James 5 is going to talk to us that where he is addressing the rich in the church, he's addressing the wealthy, the people who have. Um, there's not a number for that. I, I would say, let's be honest, everyone in this room, we're wealthy. If you want a car, you're in the top 5% of the world population, right? I mean, if you have access to transportation, you're in the top 5% of the world population in wealth. Um, it's the reality, you may not feel wealthy, sometimes I don't, but we are. We're filthy rich. James is going to talk to us today. He's going to talk to us. James, chapter 5, verse 1, if you'll read with me. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for your miseries which are coming upon you. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. And we're going to stop right there and just clarify God's perspective of riches. I just want to say straight off, first off, God is not opposed to people having possession. God is not opposed to wealth, to the idea of wealth. As a matter of fact, God established the three wealthiest people in the world, in world history, right? One of them was King Solomon. He had more wealth than anybody can ever imagine, and God had given it to him. He asked for wisdom. God gave him everything, right? And the other two people he established as the wealthiest people and even wealthier than King Solomon. We just don't talk about it. But Adam and Eve, right? He created them, and he said, here's the world. Enjoy. Steward it, right? So at one point in history, two people owned the world. I don't think you get much richer than that. And who gave it to them? God. They had possession. They had all they needed. They didn't have to work for anything. All they had to do was worship and obey. Keep and cultivate. Right? You ask for wisdom, you get riches apparently. That's the way God's God's economy works. God is not opposed to wealth. What God is opposed to is the heart that is indifferent to the poor, self-focused, judgmental, and, and, and lives in an attitude of injustice towards the poor. That's what God's opposed to. Let's keep going. Verse 2. Your riches have rotten, and your garments have become moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have rusted, and their rust will be a witness against you, and will consume your flesh like fire. It is in the last days that you have stored up your treasures. Let's Skip on down to verse 5. You have lived luxurious on the earth, and have led a life of wanton pleasure. You have fattened your hearts in the day of slaughter. You've fattened your hearts in the day of slaughter. Riches have rotten, your clothes are mothed, and your gold and silver is rusted. What is he talking about? Okay, wealth to the the people he's talking about is not stock options. It's not how many houses you own. It's not what kind of car you drive. It's not how much money you have in your pocketbook. Wealth to the people he's talking about is you have a lot of land, and it produces a lot of food. Food is wealth. Food was power, right? They were an agricultural community. Food was power. Food as wealth. So if your food is rotten, what have you done? You've let it sit around until it goes bad, right? You've let it sit around until it goes bad. If your clothes are moth-eaten, what have you done? You put them in the closet, and you don't use them, and they just sit there. So you've hoarded for yourself, and, and, you, and they sit there, and then the bugs get in, and they choose hold of them. That's why we have mothballs, right? Keep the moths out. You know, you can say they don't mess up our clothes. Gold and silver doesn't rust, but what James is using is a word picture to say that when you don't use what God has given you properly, and you don't understand the value of it, it loses its value over time. Food rots. Clothes become worthless. Nobody needs a pile of gold when they're dead, right? So the people, the rich that he is talking to, the people who are wealthy, were living with an attitude of indifference towards the poor. There were people all around them, all in their culture, that didn't have food, that didn't have money to buy food or clothing, and didn't have clothing, and they were going naked. They were sitting on the streets begging for help, and the rich were hoarding things for themselves. And they had done it in the last days. They had lost track of God's clock. They have lost track of the fact of what James says earlier in James chapter 4, that we are like vapors. That our time on this earth is, is very minimal. And so we can't, we can't live thinking we're eternal and hoarding for ourselves, thinking we'll never die. But our lives are like vapors. And so when you hoard things for yourself and they become moth-eaten, and the people behind you, next to you are, are, are naked and cold in the street, you're living with indifference. So here's the conviction. My closet is full of clothes I don't wear. Right? My closet was full of clothes I don't wear. There's, there's pants and nice shirts. and Maybe there's one day I might wear them. You know, if I lose 60 pounds, I might be able to wear those shirts again. But, but I hoard it for myself. I, want, I, I just got to have stuff. It makes me feel good that I got stuff. My, my attic is full of stuff. Just sitting there. Coming moth eaten Rusting. Wasting away. So that when I die... Zach and Caleb have to go up in the attic and take all the stuff to the dump and throw it away, right? But, but we hoard for ourselves. We have this idea. The world has taught us that we need to possess things, and we need to add lots of things into our lives, and, and it makes us feel comfortable and makes us feel good because in that one event that you might want to wear khakis and a nice shirt, you got it. I haven't worn khakis in a year and a half. I wore a suit to a funeral. That's the only time I wear a suit. I got three suits. Why? have you ever gone to your closet and you've gone through your stuff and you pull out a shirt and you're like oh this is nice and the tag's still on it and you look at it and it's a large and you wear an extra large now <laughs> right it's moth-eaten, it's worthless but there's someone in our community that could use a nice dress shirt and a pair of khakis to go to a job interview they don't have I'm living with indifference towards the poor and James is convicting us of it it might be the case for you it might be the case for you. God does not give us riches to increase our bank account. He does not give us money and food and provision to make us feel better. He gives it to us to increase our generosity, our giving capacity, what we can get out, right? I, I love listening to Dave Ramsey on talk radio. He, he always, when, he, when people are successful and they pay off their debt and they've, they've, they've worked their whole lives and they've saved money, all, every time he says, wow, you can give a lot of money away now. Right? I mean, he's, he's pushing that. He's like, okay, you've saved a million dollars. Good, you're set for retirement. Now you can give a lot away. You can be super generous because God has blessed you. It's not what the world teaches us, right? But that's the biblical principle. God increases our giving capacity when he makes us wealthy. Are we living with that mentality? Are we living with an attitude of indifference? What good would piles of gold be for a dead person? The second word is Injustice. The second word is injustice. Now, this, this is, this is going to hurt. Pull out the sandpaper. Cover up whatever you don't want to get scratched. This, this is going to hurt. Verse 4. Behold, the pay of the laborers who mowed your fields and which have been withheld by you cries out against you. And the outcry of those who did the harvesting has reached the ears of the, the Lord of the Sabbath. Verse 6. You have condemned and put to death the righteous one. He does not resist you. Poverty is a social issue. Poverty is a social issue. Let's face it. The systems of the world, the systems of the U.S., the systems we live in are broken. And they're not broken because they had malintent. They're broken because we're full of sin. We're full of self. So the systems get broken to to benefit those who are wealthy. Then, at this time, the poor uh, couldn't have a voice in the courts. Right. So the, the laborers who have mowed your fields, the, the ones who have done the harvesting. If you had a plantation and you hired a bunch of poor people for the day to come in and collect all the food and bring it into your storehouses, you owed them money at the end of the day. Right. It, as a matter of fact, God knew that the selfishness of the wealthy would say, OK, yeah, I get to you tomorrow. I don't have time. I'm too tired. I'm going to go to bed. While the people who are depending on the payment to go buy dinner for their family so they don't starve was waiting. So God knew about this. So in the Old Testament, he set up laws. To prevent it. In Deuteronomy 24, 12, and 15, if you want to write it down, go look it up. It, it is wrong to, to withhold the day laborer's food because they depend on it. They're poor and they depend on it. Leviticus 19, 13. Do not hold back the wages of a hired man overnight. They need the money. Ecclesiastes 34, 22. To take away the neighbor's living is to murder him. To take away a neighbor's living is to murder him. To deprive an employee of his wages is to shed blood. God knew we would be about ourselves and live with indifference and set up systems of injustice to the poor. So he set up a way to stop it if we would be obedient to him. Y'all, anybody grew up watching DuckTales? <laughs> Scrooge McDuck, right? He had a big old pile of gold. and He's swimming. <clears throat> I don't recommend that. I think that would hurt. Gold is hard, right? They say it's soft, but diving in the pile of gold, that's probably not a wise decision. Right? And and he had the golden rule. You remember what the golden rule was? Those who have the gold, make the rules. Right? Those who have power, those who have wealth, set the standards. Right? And they usually set the standards to benefit them and to oppress the poor. And we've got to be honest about that. Right? They've set the standards to benefit themselves and oppress the marginalized, the cast out, the poor, the powerless. Because they have power. Those who have the gold have the power. Those who don't have the gold don't have the power. What the, what the people in that James is talking to would do is they would they would harvest the fields and they'd have parties. The harvest had come in, they'd have a big party. The day laborers are outside. They're not invited to the party, and they want to go buy dinner to feed their family, and they're hungry. And then the guy's like, yeah, I'll deal with it tomorrow. And so they go hungry at night. So they go to the city gates, and they go to the courts, to the officials, and they say, this guy's not paying us. What's the deal? He's not paying us. He's, this is injustice. And then the guy would come and say, like, oh, judge, come on. It's all good. Here's 20 bucks. I'll get to him. Don't worry about it. Pay off the judges. Pay off the officials. they would use their, their status to use the justice system to oppress those who have no voice and take away the voice of the poor. God knew it. He spoke against it. James knew it. And you saw it happening in the early church. He spoke against it. We've got to realize it still happens today. It still happens today. It's a reality. The U.S. sends billions of dollars across the world in aid to people. And they go to countries with warlords. Food come in. And what do the warlords do? Take the food from the people and sell it for more weapons. Right? You see, watch a movie. <laughs> Look <laughs> at the news. Happens all the time. Take the, take the resources given to the poor and sell it for, for wealth or, or status or more weapons. There are, there are socialistic governments that demand you do slave labor on the fields so that you can produce enough food and it creates food lines of people impoverished. It's happening in Venezuela right now, right? They, they have to work on the, in the fields. And they're rioting because there's, it's slavery. It's unjust. But the people of power use the gold, use the power to oppress the powerless to press the marginalized. We have it set up in our own country. Maybe with with this this the veil of the greatest intent. Our welfare system, our welfare system, is set up and designed to keep people from getting jobs. Right, it's it's set up and designed. You can only make this much, and then we give you enough money to live like this. But if you try to get in between that gap, you lose all your benefits. You lose your housing. You lose your medical. You lose your, your food stamps. You lose it all. So don't try to succeed. Don't try to get a job like God designed you to work and labor. Don't, don't do, not it do its not amazing? The government has set up a system that's against God's design. I don't know. It's amazing. It, it surprises me. But, like, we'll help you live as if you were working without working. And now this guy over here, he's going to take it away, so you better vote for me. Whether you're Republican, you're Democrat, you're Libertarian, they're all guilty of it. It's not a party thing. It's a classism thing. It's we have power and we'll use it to suppress the people who are powerless. It's real. It happens. It's unjust. And the church has got to stand up. This gap should be filled with the body of Christ. That's where we belong, in that gap. Not standing out, expecting the government to take care of it, or expecting some other organization or nonprofit to solve the problem. We belong in the gap. We belong in the gap. Another one that maybe you're not very familiar with, because I didn't even think about it until I was doing this research. Um, when people, uh, Tim Keller gave a great sermon called Blessed Are the Poor. I highly recommend you go onto his podcast, you look it up, and you listen to it. Uh, some of these illustrations are coming from it. There's no other better way to illustrate it. It's Tim Keller. You can't compete with him, right? He's amazing. So um, he opened my eyes to this. In, in poor neighborhoods, in poor areas of cities, there are businesses. There are gas stations. There are dry cleaners. They're businesses, right? But the people who own the businesses don't what? They don't live there, right? They live over here. They live in South Durham, right? The people, they have businesses in East Durham. They live in South Durham. This is, this is an illustration. Okay, I don't know this is true. I'm just saying. This is what happens. So what do they do? They set up businesses, and they make profit. And they take that profit, and they don't invest it back in the community where the people who are poor live because it's not safe. It's not a safe neighborhood to live in. Is there anything wrong with wanting to live in a safe neighborhood? No, there's not. There's nothing wrong with that. But what we're doing is we're participating in injustice because we're taking from the poor and spending in the wealthy neighborhoods and investing in the wealth. Right? Proverbs 23 says this. Um, Proverbs thirteen twenty three: Abundant food is found in the fields of the poor, but it is swept away by injustice. The poor, what the poor have is taken from them by systems set up to oppress. And we don't even realize we're doing it. There are businesses that make people work ridiculous hours and pay them minimum wage. And if you don't show up, you're fired. There are large corporations that do this. Oppress the powerless. Put down the marginalized. The wealthy stay wealthy and get more. I'm not trying to be a one percenter here. I'm not like it's not Occupy Wall Street. It's just reality. And it doesn't matter which side of the political spectrum you fall on. Because the Democrats had control of the Senate and the Congress, and they didn't pass welfare reform. The Republicans have had control of the Senate and the Congress, and they haven't passed welfare reform. It does not matter. The systems are set up for the powerful to stay powerful, and the poor and the marginalized to stay marginalized. This is unjust. This was happening in the time of James. It's happening today, the day, and we have got to care. Guess what? God does care. Look at verse 5 again. Four, sorry, 4 4B. The outcry of those who did the harvesting has reached the ears of the Lord. The outcry of those who did the harvesting has reached the ears of the Lord. God cares about the poor. Jonathan Edwards, there is nothing more clear in all of Scripture than the care of God and the duty of the Christian to care for the poor. It's all over the place. You know where we see it? We see it in the good news. Up until now, right now, you might feel a little offended. You might be a little, like, a little hesitant to, to go with where I'm going, you might even feel like, oh great, more religion. i gotta, I got I to gotta change the way I live. i got to give more money. i got to get in the gap. i gotta, I got to do, i got to do, i got to do. The more religion, right? But let me give you some good news. Let me give you the gospel. Let's get away from religion. Let's talk about the gospel. God cares about the poor. He loves them deeply. So much so that you think, you think in 2008, your 401k took a dive, right? And it lost value. Think about the, the God of all the universe coming off the throne and becoming flesh. You want know, to talk about a value drop? <laughs> you know, I mean, if it wasn't God in the flesh. Like, he gave up everything of heaven and came and lived here. He came and lived here. And he was born in a, in a, in a stranger's house and laid in a manger. Didn't even have a crib. Laid in a manger. He grew up with poor parents. Right? He grew up with poor parents. We know they were poor, that he gave their offering when they went to dedicate him were two doves. That's the poorest offering you could give, is offering of the poor. He lived in neighbors' houses. He lived at the generosity of others, right? People wanted to follow him. He's God, i got nothing to offer you. Foxes have holes and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. He was homeless. He's the guy on the side of the street with the banner that said, I want to tell you the good news of God. That was him. He was the guy standing there. He was the homeless prophet. He lived through the generosity of others. He died naked. He came into the world with nothing. He left with nothing. He died naked. And he was even buried in a borrowed tomb. He didn't even have his own burial site. God cares for the poor. All through the text, all through the Old Testament, the promise of Messiah was coming. You know what the promises were? When Messiah comes, justice for the poor. When Messiah comes, relief for the poor. When Messiah comes, Provision for the poor, the poor, the poor, the poor. When Messiah comes, something good is going to happen. And when Jesus came, this is what he did. He stepped onto the scene. Luke 4 records this. He steps onto the scene. He goes to the synagogue. He's about to start his, his first, his first, his start of his ministry. And he steps into the synagogue and he picks up a scroll. And he pulls it out and it's from Isaiah 69 and he reads it. And he says, I'm going to read it for you so I will make sure I get it right. The spirit of the Lord is upon me. Because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind. To set at liberty those who are oppressed. Can I get an amen? Amen. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then he he rolled up the scroll and he gave it back to the attendant and he sat down. And Luke 4 says that everybody looked at him with their mouth open. Like, that's an odd thing to read with such authority. And he said, Today, in your hearing... This has been fulfilled. He basically said, Hello, I'm Messiah. You want to know who's coming to proclaim good news to the poor? I'm Messiah. And then he he affirms it again. John gets arrested. He's in prison. He sends his disciples and says, Hey, go go and ask him. Go ask him if he's really the one or if we should look for someone else. If he's really the Messiah. And he responded to him in Matthew 11. He said, The blind receive sight. Go and tell John this. The blind receive sight. The lame walk. The ones with leprosy are cleansed. The deaf here, The dead are raised. Amen. The good news is proclaimed to the poor. Messiah has come. And then the good news is, he didn't just come and then leave us. He left himself here for the poor. It's us. We're the hands and feet. We're the voice. We're the ambassadors. We are the body, the living manifestation of Christ in the world today, in the city. He left himself here through his spirit. And he said, go fill the gaps, go care for the poor, go love them. I've laid it out all through scripture. I've come to set them free. I've done my work. Go do yours. Go do yours. The message of the gospel is only good news to the poor. The message of the gospel is only good news to the poor. It doesn't mean anything to the rich. It doesn't mean anything to the middle class. It's only good for the poor. Because the gospel does two things. If you're taking notes, you need to write this down. The gospel does two things. It makes us poor, and it leads us to bless and not oppress the poor. It makes us poor, and it leads us to bless and not oppress. How does it make us poor? This is what it is. When when Jesus came, he came to the poor primarily, and guess who followed him? Poor people, right? Right? He got out and he would preach, and it would be the end of the day and everybody was hungry and they didn't pull out their lunch bags and start eating. They were like, we're hungry we don't have any money. What do we do? Go in and sit and buy food. We eye money. Alright, who's got fish and loaves? Let's do this again. You know what I mean? And he, he would feed tons of people. He'd feed them through miracles because they were poor. Why did they get the gospel? Why did the Pharisees, the people of power, the people of wealth, the people of status, why did they turn their nose and walk away? They didn't need him. They had their religion. They had their wealth. They didn't need him. But the poor needed a savior. The poor came with empty hands and hearts full of faith and said save us. We've got nothing. And you bring us everything. You bring us hope. You bring justice. Save us. So in order for us to be saved by the gospel, we have to become poor. Matthew 5 Blessed are the Poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now listen, Matthew 5 and Luke's account of the Sermon on the Mount, they're compilations of many sermons, right? It's not that he sat down and this is exactly how it was laid out. It's a compilation of many sermons at different times. And this is how Matthew puts them all together and Luke puts them all together. And Luke doesn't cut corners. Luke doesn't say with an allegory, blessed are the poor in spirit. He says, blessed are the poor, woe to the rich. Straight up. Blessed are the poor, theirs is the kingdom of heaven, woe to the rich. So we can't allegorize it. There's something about economy that changes our response to the gospel. But the beauty of the gospel is that it makes us poor. Because what it does is it tells us, don't come waving your status. Don't come waving your good works. Don't come with all of your money and say, God, you owe me. That's not good news. Right? Because then it's like, well, how much do I have to bring to God for him to save me? That's not good news. The good news is this come empty handed and he'll do the work for you. Become poor in spirit. Come with nothing and he will give you everything. He gives you everything. You become poor, he makes you exceedingly wealthy. He gives you his kingdom, he gives it all to you. So we've got to become poor in order to love the poor. Remember, James just had this whole thing where he's rebuking people for their, their, their judgmental attitudes, right? He said, If you think you can judge people because of the law, that means you're a lawgiver, and you're not above the lawgiver, so you need to evaluate yourself in light of the gospel. You need to make yourself poor in spirit so you'll love your neighbor and not judge. And then you think you can just go and plan and, and make yourself successful and live your life, and, and, and you've got it all under control, but guess what? Who do you think you are? You're a vapor, you're nothing, you are not the sovereign God. It's not up to you. God loves you. And now he's saying to the rich, who do you think you are living with indifference to the poor? Who do you think you are setting systems to oppress people? That's not what I've come to do for you. Evaluate yourself in light of the gospel. Become poor and then love the poor. Because until we become poor, we don't, we don't look at the poor like us. We go to them and say, you're poor because you're lazy. You're poor because of this. You're poor because of that. I'm better than you. Right? We might have that attitude when we approach the poor. Oh, I, I can't give money to that homeless guy. He'll just go spend it on alcohol. He's an addict. We don't even know it, But we come with judgmental attitudes. But when we become poor in spirit, we realize we have nothing to bring just like they have nothing to bring. Yet God loves us both. It will lead us to love the poor. It will break our hearts for people who are marginalized, who are outcast, who are broken. Man, I want to invite you guys to come up. I'm going to give you a final thought. What do we do with this? How do we, how do we, how do we take our, our poverty in spirit and then begin to love other people? How do we do that? There's lots of ways we can do it. First, we've got to break our hearts. We've got, we've, got to, we've got to become born in spirit. We've got to be saved by grace and not by our own works. We've got to, we've got to be evaluating ourselves in that in light of the the gospel and the second we gotta educate ourselves about the injustice that's happening around us and then stand against it. That is it's not our option as Christians, it's our duty as Christians to be against the injustice that offends our God. And to step in there and love people. Right? We've got we've got to go from attending missions projects to establishing relationships with the poor. We got to get out of making people our projects and start making them our brothers and sisters. You got to get away from that, away from projects and into the relationships. What does that look like? Don't give five dollars to the homeless guy. Go down to Walmart or go to go to Mickey D's and buy two meals. Come back and sit and have lunch with them, and talk to them and get to know their story. Don't just give a handout. Give them your hand. Get into a relationship. There's a really really cool ministry that a missional community is being involved in. It's called Real Durham. And they see the gap. And they see that the relationships of the church in the gap, the relationship of any faith base in there, can help people climb out of poverty. They know the injustice. Their answer is a three-year commitment to somebody. That three or four people will, will rally around someone in poverty, not as a project, but make them their brother. Invite them into their home. Have, have a meal with them. Introduce them to their social network so that they have an expanded reach. Remember, they're poor because they don't have. They, they, they act out in crime and all that thing as the result of poverty. It doesn't cause their poverty. They, they're, they're poor because they don't have, according to the scripture. So why not bring what we have to the table, not as a handout, but as a family? We love you. We see you, you can be a part of this. We can adopt a low-performing high school. People at ReCity told me the other day that there are enough high school dropouts, there are enough people that are at risk of dropping out or out of high school right now, young youth in Durham, that you could fill five high schools full of them. Why don't we step in and tutor people? Make sure they don't think they're worthless, just because they don't get A's and B's. But help them succeed and see the value that God has given them in relationships. We can change our shopping habits. We could change where we live. Maybe God is calling you to move to the place where you're scared. Maybe he's calling you to move into those neighborhoods and love people in relationships. Here's the final thought. I know I already said I would do it, but here it is. Verse 6. You have condemned the righteous one. You have condemned and put to death the righteous one. He does not resist you. Who's the righteous one? Romans tells us there are none that are righteous. No, not one. No one seeks God. Right? All have sinned and fallen short of it. There's no one that's righteous. When Lance and I were studying this text, we kind of wrestled with it. We're like, I guess we have to just be honest. We don't know who the righteous one is. Is he talking about Jesus? Is he talking about Jesus? Because here's what the text says. In Mark 9.37, whoever welcomes one of these little children, in this context, one of the marginalized, one of the powerless, one of the poor, Whenever you welcome one of these little ones in my name, he also welcomes me. And whoever welcomes me does not only welcome me, but he welcomes the one who sent me. Welcomes the one who sent me. Matthew 25, 31 for 40. I'll, I'll summarize it for you. Um, the, king, the king will come at the end of the time and he will gather all the nations together and he will separate the sheep from the goats. Those who are his and those who are not. And he'll look at them and they'll, he'll say, Come into my kingdom, receive your inheritance, you who I love. And they'll say, Why us? What, what do we do? And he'll say this When I was hungry, you fed me. When I was thirsty, you gave me drink. When I was a stranger, stranger, you invited me in. When I needed clothes, you clothed me. When I was sick, you looked after me. When I was in prison, you visited me. And they'll say, When? We never saw you. And he said, I tell you the truth. When you do this for the least of these, you do it for me. To care for the poor and the marginalized is not an option. It's our worship. It's our worship. It's our worship. Stand and let worship in song.